Support for this podcast is brought to you by Goat Rodeo, a creative audio agency in Washington, D.C. Goat Rodeo helps clients and partners create high-quality professional audio content, translating ideas to sound. Find them at GoatRodeoDC.com. To me, when I do my work, I want people to feel something, be it inspiration, pride. Especially these days, now that you're seeing more faces like mine on the screen, I want some kid to be able to be like, oh my gosh, that guy looks like me. You're making people feel. That's what storytelling has always been about since the days of like cavemen. We're just trying to share and capture a feeling and give that to future generations. From Adespel Media, I'm Megan Rumler, and you're listening to Adespel Voices, a podcast that features intimate conversations with Asian American trailblazers who all have one thing in common, unabashedly pursuing their dreams while transforming the fabric of this nation. From food to business to tech to the arts, this is Asian America, up close and personal. Our guest today is Alex Wynn, an actor and stuntman who has most recently been in the trilogy action film John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum, which was critically acclaimed for its action-packed choreography. Alex starred in the intense motorcycle sword fight scene with Keanu Reeves. Over the past 15 years, Alex has been in many recognizable television shows and blockbuster movies, He had a supporting role opposite Will Smith in the movie Hancock and starred in National Geographic Channel's Fight Science as well as Netflix's Daredevil. As a stuntman, Alex was in Pirates of the Caribbean 3, Sherlock Holmes 2, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2. Alex Wynn, welcome to A Decibel Voices. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Alex, you were born in New York and then lived out in Los Angeles for what, about nine years or something like Uh, that? Nine or ten years out in Los Angeles. But then you grew up in Roanoke, Virginia. I grew up in Roanoke, Virginia. So is is kind of being here in the Washington, D.C. studio with us kind of a bit of a homecoming, a little bit? It is. Uh, I always love coming back to Virginia. There's a um, part of my heart that will always be here. Every time I come back here, there's this feeling of uh, nostalgia but it's a place where it was much simpler. So thinking about, you know, your childhood, what was it like growing up here? And you have a sister, right? I so do. What was, what was your childhood like? I was born in New York. My sister and I and my father and my mother moved to Los Angeles. And when we moved to Los Angeles, we found out that my mother was diagnosed with colon cancer. And unfortunately, we lost her uh, within the year. I'm and so sorry. It was, yeah, it, it was a bit of a challenge. My sister and myself uh, went to live with our grandmother in Virginia, in Roanoke, Virginia. And it's funny because at that young age, you don't really see that you're different. You just, you're just a kid, you know? To be completely honest, my sister is my best friend all throughout my life. When we lost our mom, my sister all of a sudden just catapulted and put herself. She's like, I need to be the maternal figure and take care of this, this kid. Because I was just this four-year-old, and I had no idea what was going on. And I'm sure she didn't either. It always felt like my sister and I were blazing the trail together. 
I read somewhere that at around age five that you formed a passion for entertaining audiences mm -hmm. and it originated with a puppet play yeah. that you did for the neighborhood kids. Do you remember the name of the play and what, what was it about? I don't know the name of the play. I don't know that it had a name, nor do I know if it had a narrative. It was just stories that we came up with. Um, was it like sock puppets or shadow puppets? No, like, what are we talking brown about? Brown paper bag puppets. So we have brown paper bag puppets. Again, this is around the time, so four or five years old, just lost our mom, trying to just find our way in this new town that we were we were put into. And my sister saw kind of this excitement that I had for imagination and coming up with stories and coming up with characters and building these worlds, there was something more. So, my, so we wanted to, to connect with the people, the, the community around. And so my sister and I walked around the neighborhood, knocked on doors, and we're like, hi, do you have any kids here? And we would meet all the neighborhood kids, and we're like, hey, we're going to do this play on our patio if you want to come by our house. And so <laughs> now we have an audience. And so I think what happened was the day before, I'm like, well, we got to... If everyone comes over, we got to give them something because that's that's the Asian ways. We 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 give people party <laughs> gifts, so we built we we baked a bunch of cookies and put them in a tin little tin box. And the day of the performance, we go out there and all these kids are on our uh, our front patio and we set up the stage and we put on these plays and these little stories. And at the end of it, we stand up and uh, from behind the stage and all these kids are clapping all these kids we didn't know before and now our friends and then we walked around and started handing cookies out and it's almost as clear as day i could see the box and everything that i knew that was the moment i was like this is what i want to do i want to bring people together i want to entertain them and, and tell great stories and i want to be able to give back it seems like it was such a profound moment for you what were you feeling connection. It's just that connection that I felt like I was a part of something bigger. You lose a big part of your life and there's just this hole and you're just looking to fill that hole in your heart. And that connection kind of flooded my heart with these feelings, this warmth. And I was like, I want to always have that. I want to keep giving of myself so that I can receive something. I know that that's what I have to do in this lifetime is in order to find some kind of fulfillment, I have to give something from myself. And so that's, that's why I, I will put everything on the line and get punched in the face sometime for, for a job because I, I see how excited people get when they watch these action sequences or they laugh. It's like, mm -hmm. it just makes my heart full. So speaking of reactions, and you alluded to this earlier and wanted to come back to it, was the moment you were named Homecoming King at your high school. Was it North Northside North High, high School? Oh my gosh, you did your research. Northside <laughs> High School. And you took that opportunity to showcase your heritage and your culture by wearing a traditional Vietnamese garment yeah. to the pep rally in front of the entire school. Yeah. So for those listeners that don't understand what this garment is, can you, can you describe it a little bit? And why did you wear it? The Vietnamese Aoyai is typically made of silk, so it's a nice, sheer, shiny uh, material. And essentially, if you take a shirt and extend it all the way down to the bottom of your knees, so it's almost like a dress, um, that's what an Aoyai is. It, if you break down and translate the word, it's, it's Aoyai, Ao, shirt, Yai, long, long shirt. Um, so you, traditionally, this is worn to 
special occasions, uh, weddings, uh, any time where there's like it's fancy. Yeah, it's a fan. It's a it's a fancy thing. It's like wearing a tuxedo. <laughs> it's silk. We're talking yeah, silk. We're talking silk. And I mean, <laughs> sometimes they they ain't just like solid like black silk or blue I mean, silk. These or can get like, quite intricate, right? Yeah, there's um, embroidery sometimes. I mean, there's it's beautiful. It, it's it's such a beautiful thing. And uh, you know, well, you wear wear pants underneath, first of all. So, so don't 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 think that I was walking around without pants, like Donald ducking it. Like I'm, I wasn't doing that. People used to call me the Asian sensation <laughs> my senior year of high school, and part of it, I think, is just because there was there weren't that many Asian people there, so they was like, "Wow, sensational!" I'm like, "Yeah, sure, give it to me, I'll take it." So I was like, "Well, I can't call myself the Asian sensation, but not share." Embrace this, this, your this culture. culture. Yeah, you know, like, what am I hiding? And so I remember I would, I'm going to get in trouble for this. I used to take my <laughs> uncle's alley out of the closet, and I was like, it was so beautiful. He wore it to his wedding, and I would wear it, because I was like, yo, man, this is so dope. Like, I could wear this, and watch me do like, some, some kicks in it. Oh, man, this would be amazing. <laughs> and so I, I just thought I looked fly in it. And I was like, you know what? Everyone needs to see how fly I look wearing this. So I brought it to school. I asked my sister to walk with me at the senior pep rally. And she's wearing a dress. And then I'm wearing a dress too, pretty much. And she goes, uh, are you sure you want to do this? Yeah, definitely. And I walk into the school. And every student is just looking at me in this silk dress, essentially. Something so foreign, unfamiliar to them. And they're like, oh my gosh, what are you wearing? You know, I was like, I'm wearing a Vietnamese Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I put it out there like, da, da, da. <laughs> and they're like, you look so different. And I told them, I said, well, you all look the same. <laughs> and when I won Homecoming King, that was the craziest because now the guy in the dress is walking around with the scepter in his hand. I'm like, ah, ha, ha, gotcha. I love that theme of boldness, which has continued throughout your career and your personality and really just embracing who you are. And there's a sense of authenticity that is undeniable. So after graduating high school, you then went on to Virginia Commonwealth University, mm -hmm. ultimately graduating with a Bachelor of Science degree in advertising and art direction, but ended up pursuing a career in show business. What was your original intention around your undergraduate degree? And are there any parallels today? Absolutely. What are the parallels? It was my freshman year in college, and I took a mass communications 101 course. So I'm sitting in the class, and I see the option of advertising. You take something and learn as much as you possibly can about it, and you use every angle to sell it. And I saw that, and I walked up to my professor. I was like, hey, um, if I went on this track, what does it usually lead to? They're like, oh, you could maybe even direct commercials and things like that. I was like, cool. So I just signed up. I said, I'm going to sign up for this. All the meanwhile in my brain, all I was thinking is when I move to Los Angeles, I'm not going to know anyone. So who's going to sell me as an actor? And so I was like, I'm the only person who knows myself the best. So if I know this product the best, then I need to use every angle that I can to sell it so that people can see what I believe in. I, I pretty much just took myself and used myself as the product to sell 
to the entertainment industry. I sold myself out. <laughs> no. um, but yeah, and, and so then this is, this is the actually really kind of funny part is at my graduation, I told my professor, I was like, hey, so uh, before senior finals, I had an audition for Cirque du Soleil. They accepted me. I'm in their candidate pool now. They're like, wait, why did you do that? I thought you were going to advertising. I said, yeah, no, you know, the whole point of it was just to sell myself into the entertainment industry. She's like, you've been, it's just been in the back of your head the whole time. I was like, yeah, I guess it was just that motivation that kind of drove me forward. But I never, it wasn't like every single day I went to school, I was like, I'm going to be in the movies. And, you know, everything has to move forward toward that. No, I just put that goal out there. I spoke it into the universe. And it's from those skills that I learned how to market and promote myself and other people. The parallel, at least when I moved to Los Angeles, is I met with a group of friends who were just amazingly talented, and we came together every weekend, and we created a stunt team called the Real Kick Stunt Team, and we would make uh, short films. No one knew who we were, but we all contributed what we knew, and I knew how to sell the films that we made. And so I was like, we just got to put it on the internet. And at the time, this is before YouTube and everything, people go to realkick.com and they would watch these videos. They're like, huh, these kids have some talent. And that's how we got our work in the beginning. That's where that, uh, the, the diploma uh, in art direction and, and advertising really came together. To play yeah. with... I want to come back to the, the Cirque du Soleil because after college, you know, and before you moved out to LA, there mm -hmm. was this whole Cirque du Soleil experience. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I wanted to know, what did they have you do? And what was it about? I feel like something happened in that moment that propelled you to, to be like, okay, now I'm going to move to LA and be, you know, this stunt person and an actor. And also, how did your family react to that news. I'm assuming you had to tell them, right? <laughs> oh, oh, we're digging in now. All right. Let's sleep. get comfy. All right. <laughs> so during my senior finals, I was studying at a bookstore with my friends. What that really means is I was reading magazines at the bookstore with my textbooks there, present. <laughs> That's it. So I'm reading these magazines, and in one of the magazines, it's, it had an ad for Cirque du Soleil auditions. So I look at my friend. I said, hey, man, um, I think I should try this because we always, you know, would see it on TV. Like, oh, they're, they're playing, like, one of the Cirque du Soleil shows on um, TV. And I was like, oh, it's so cool. And the people do martial arts, and they're, like, dancing. And I sent in a tape. It's just me doing martial arts. They call me up to New York and they say, hey, we would like for you to audition. I go to this facility. Uh, it's like a gymnastics facility. It's early in the morning, maybe like 7 a.m. And we start the audition. And throughout the day, they make cuts. And I made it all the way to 6 p.m. And I was like, oh, I haven't been cut yet. And at the end of all of it, they said, congratulations. You've all been accepted to the candidacy, candidacy pool for our next Cirque du Soleil show, um, which will be centered around martial arts. And you're and age 22, right? I was this about, was, yeah, I was about 22 yeah, years old, 21, 22. And at that same time, I had tried out for the U.S. Wushu team, uh, Chinese martial arts team, and I secured a spot on the team to compete um, against the world. 
in the Pan American Games. And so I have the Cirque du Soleil opportunity. I have the U.S. Wushu team. And then in four months, I would be finishing college. So I was like, ooh, nice little setup there, Alex. Well done. But as the world would have it, things don't go the way you plan it. I get a phone call, and it's from Sark, and they're like, hey, so we want you now. I'm like, oh, uh, what? what? <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, and, and we were talking, and I was like, oh, well, I'm not available right now. They're like, but you just auditioned. I'm like, yeah, but I have four more months, and I'll be done with university. I'm like, yeah, that's not how this works. It's a two-year contract. I was like, okay, well, I don't think I can do it. And... I think that was something that I, it appalled me, and I'm pretty sure it appalled them. Was it timing? Was that the issue? I, I think that's just it. It was just the kind of the, the timing of it all. I was like, I've spent so many years, three and a half uh, to four years in college. Like, let me just finish this, you know? Like, You're so close. I was so close. I was like, I'm at that fin- I see that finish line. For me to like go off and, uh, on a tangent and take this exit ramp would be, I would regret it. I graduate, and they were doing a show out in Los Angeles. And at the time, Los Angeles was an idea in my mind, um, but I wasn't really fully committed to it. So Cirque said, oh, why don't you come out and you can see the stuff that you help choreograph? I'm like, sure. So I fly, fly out to LA, I get to see my dad and I get to see my family out there and um, I get to go watch the show and they, put, they take me through like the behind the scenes and then they show me all this stuff. I was like, whoa. Yeah. A real treat, treatment like VIP. It felt so special, yeah. I was like, oh. But when I, when I got on the plane to head back to Virginia, I said to myself, I said, man, like people want what I have to offer. And I didn't think, I was just like, I didn't think anything of it like before because I was like, it's just what I do. But when I saw, wow, maybe this is a gift and I, I need to give this, um, I said, well, maybe I'll move out to Los Angeles for six months and we'll see how it goes. If it doesn't work out, then you can always go back to Virginia. You can go back to school. You were doing great in advertising. You can go back to advertising. Um, so I took a chance and I moved out to Los Angeles and really I tried to rebuild a relationship with my father, you know, because we just had so much time apart that it was, it was an opportunity to really get to know each other, know what's been going on in our lives, you know, and then audition and try things. And in the fifth month that I was there, the stunt coordinator was at a gym. His name is James Liu. And he saw that I was doing martial arts. And he's like, hey, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I'm just training because I have a competition for the U.S. Wushu team coming up. He's like, do you mind if I shoot some video of you? I was like, yeah, sure. So he shot some video of me. A week later, he calls me. He's like, hey, so that video that I shot of you, I showed it to a producer. I'd really love for you to be a part of this project. It's uh, the Matrix uh, video game. And I was like, yeah sure okay yeah that sounds cool (laughs) so I do it and and James is just such an awesome guy and he's like dude you've got a great uh, martial arts background too because that was just the cinematic stuff that I did he's like do you want to do the stunt stuff too I was like yeah sure And so I'm meeting all these great stunt guys I'm working with this amazing stunt coordinator James Liu and he's just he just took me in and he took me under his wing and he mentored me through it and from that moment on it was just a blessing a string of blessings just one after the next, brought me on to my first TV show that got me into the Screen Actors Guild. Um, I met another stunt coordinator who put my name in, and then I got on to Pirates of the Caribbean. And then it's just like, 
I can't believe I get to do this. Even mm-hmm. to this day, I still think, like every single day I wake up, I'm like, I can't believe I get to do this. You get to work with some of the most amazing people, the most amazing talents, and they listen to you when you talk? Like, what is this? And I was like, what, I get paid to do this? <laughs> I, was like, I, I was just doing it for copy credit meals, but now now it's like I actually get, like a, a, I can make a living out of this. And so I told my family, they all knew, my family all knew I wanted to tell stories and make movies. Were you surprised by their support? Were you surprised? No. My family's always been great. I think about what they had to go through to get my family over here um, during wartime. And all they want is to see the generations after them live a better life and not have to struggle. You know, And obviously, it would be nice if I had a, a quote-unquote stable job, doctor, engineer. Well, my sister took care of that for me, and God bless her for it. <laughs> she became a doctor, and I was like, y'all already have a doctor, so I'm going to go make some movies. You know? and, and that was it. It's like I set certain uh, guideposts. I was like, I need to meet these guideposts. And my grandmother couldn't. Like My grandmother passed away before uh, we graduated college. Uh, I, my sister and I graduated. Um, I graduated college, and she graduated medical school at the same time. And so we just wanted our grandfather to be able to see us accomplish something uh, significant uh, during his lifetime. And so I had this thing inside of me. I was like, I just want my grandfather to see me on TV. You know, I was like, at one point while he's still alive, I want him to see his grandson on TV. I did this TV show for National Geographic uh, Channel. It was called Fight Science. My mentor, James Liu, and I got to do it together. It was super special to me. So I go to uh, my grandfather's house around that time and turn the TV on. And it's on National Geographic Channel. We're just sitting there watching stuff. My face pops up on the screen. And he, he looks at me, and he looks at the screen, and he looks back at, at me, and he looks at the screen, and then slowly turns his head and looks at me. And my grandfather just he doesn't have to say a word. He just nodded his head. And what did that moment mean to you? That's everything. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by our sponsors, 8 Media Group, a Washington, D.C. area video production company whose mission is to create, collaborate, and resonate. Find them at 8mediagroup.com. If you're just joining us, we've been talking with Alex Wynn a New York-based actor and stuntman who has brought years of competitive martial arts, or more specifically, Chinese wushu, to his work in movies and television. Alex is a multi-decorated martial artist, winning three gold medals for the U.S. national men's wushu team, two world titles, and two national titles in the North American Sport Karate Association tournament circuit. Alex, for our listeners that don't know, what is Chinese wushu? So when you hear Kung Fu, I would say that Kung Fu uh, is more the grandfather of most martial arts. And Wushu was created more as a performance martial art uh, to be delivered to the world. However, if you translate Wushu, it's martial art. There are practical applications to Wushu, but it, most of it is performance-based. So even though you didn't begin martial arts until age eight, your family comes from a, a really rich heritage of martial arts masters. Can you talk a little bit about this? 
I grew up in a family of martial artists. I remember seeing photos of my mom in a, a karate gi, and my father did Aikido, um, and also studied uh, Tai Chi, uh, Bagua, which are the internal Chinese martial arts. Um, and my grandfather, which I didn't realize until uh, I think I turned 14, my grandfather used to do a martial art which was uh, stick-based. So it's almost like Filipino Eskrima Kali. It was like a switch, I guess is what you call it. It's like he, he just knew how to fight with a stick. Uh, and I used to see him walk around the backyard with a, with a bamboo stick behind his back. And I was like, whoa, he's a master. And so I grew up around martial arts. Uh, I didn't formally start until around eight, nine years old. And it was mostly because I was a sickly child. I couldn't eat the food at school because I would throw up. Um, my body just wasn't strong enough. Um, and my parents put me into martial arts. Uh, and I trained at a Shaolin Kung Fu school in Roanoke, Virginia. And it's it was the only Chinese martial arts school in the area. Again, I had to be different from everyone. I didn't want to do the karate school that everyone did. I wanted to do Kung Fu. Now, in, in you know, looking back with hindsight, you've had decades of uh, martial arts, really mastery. What has it come to symbolize for you? A foundation. To me, martial arts, it, it's not just one thing. It, it's, if you break it down, art is an expression of yourself. Martial is combative techniques. So you're expressing yourself through combative techniques, be it through your fists, through your feet, through your head, through your fingers. You know, like we are learning how to use what we have been given and optimize on what we've been given to protect ourselves, um, to protect others. So it is a foundation to me to do martial arts because I know that I am self-sufficient and I can protect others and I can offer what I have if I do it the best that I can. And that kind of laid the groundwork for everything in my life is use what you've been given, optimize it, do it the best that you can, and share it somehow with other people. Looking at your career and your work experience, you've performed stunt work for really big movie productions like Suicide Squad, The Last Airbender, which was one of my favorite movies, and The Hangover 3. So now that you've been in the show business for, what, almost 15 years? Mm -hmm. What is the magic of being a great stuntman? I mean, is there like a best skill set that someone would need to possess in order to really thrive and survive in the in the business? Oh, man, that's a tough question. <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> I would say what I have learned through being a stuntman is that they are the toughest men and women in the business. And it's, it goes far beyond the superficial. It goes beyond the physical. Because physically, they're rock stars. You're talking about people who can do some of the most amazing physical things, skill sets. We're talking about people who are world champion divers, martial artists, horseback riding, you name it, gymnasts. Like They can do so many amazing feats through movement. But what, to me, is most impressive is... The creativity and the resilience, the, the perseverance that these people have, it's almost ingrained within every stunt person, this competitive nature, but it's not with others, it's with themselves. They're like, no, I can do this better, I can do this better. So they constantly cultivate their craft. You're in a line of work where you're constantly falling, right? 
Every time you fall, what is resilience? Getting back up. That's what these stunt men and women do is every time they fall, they get back up. There is no L that is a loss. It is a lesson and they just keep pressing on. And that's why I fell in love with stunt work and the community. Um, and I think that's what translated over into my acting is like, you have to take yourself to places that you're uncomfortable so that you can cultivate your creativity. There's this saying in the stunt world where it was like, uh, pain is temporary, film is forever. When it came to being a part of John Wick 3, this was a group of people that I wanted so badly to work with because I knew they paid homage to all the people who paved the way before, and I knew that they were going to do something with this movie to pave the way for the future. People are going to look back and be like, I want to do John Wick 3 style action. And for me to be a part of that, I was so humbled and so honored to be a part of it and so scared as well because I was like, that's a lot of responsibility. You mentioned uh, a sense of fear, and that's something I, I did want to touch on. I imagine being a stunt person in Hollywood must be, and it sounds like from what you're saying, it really is belonging to this sense of an exclusive club of elite performers. Mm -hmm. You know, it's adrenaline-pumping work. It sounds like what I'm hearing is it's, there's a sense of satisfaction to contributing so tangibly to the magic of Hollywood, to the magic of movies. Yeah. On the flip side, you know, you mentioned a sense of fear, being scared. Being a stunt person is inherently extremely dangerous. Does being a stunt person raise the concept of mortality for you? I heard this really great quote from, it was one of my friends, we were on a movie together. He's been doing movies since he was, I believe, three days old. How you can do that? I didn't know, and so then he explained. He said, when I was born, my parents uh, were in the stunt industry. There was a stunt where a, a baby needed to be by a train track. And so he did it. And, and he said to me, and so the quote from him was, every stunt performer has a sense of mortality, and for that reason, they live their lives as big as they possibly can, as full as they possibly can. Because tomorrow's not promised. And so I look at life and I say, well, I can live, so I will live. It's that simple. What advice would you impart to our listeners, some of who may be aspiring stuntmen or stunt people mm -hmm. and actors and actresses? What advice would you give to them about making a career in show business? Oh, man. I don't know that I'm an authority for this, but <laughs> um, just from what I've experienced, Will Smith, who, who I, oh man, I had the great fortune of working with, he shaped so much of my career. And he said something in an interview once where he said, you don't set out to build the wall. You just lay a brick every single day and you lay that brick as perfectly as a brick can be laid. And soon you have a wall. And I just look at that and I think in terms of career, it's like, yeah, we think of these ideas of grandeur. I want to be a working actor. I want to be a star, which honestly, guys, don't seek out to be a star. It is an illusion. It's something that people give you. But when they give it to you, it also means they expect to have some of your privacy. They have access to you. So don't, it's not about stardom or celebrity. Seek to put your love out into this world. Have the vision. Have the goal. But Day after day, just put in the work. 
Uh, and it, sometimes it's little things, reading scripts, reading books, going out to the museums, going out and talking to people. It's to be an actor is to create believable behavior in the world, imaginary world of a script. That's what my acting coach used to tell me. So how can you create believable behavior if you don't know what life really is? The only way to know life is to live life, to experience life. So go travel, meet people, like have conversations with people. I mean, actors have to be the best livers. If there's anything that I want anyone to take away from hearing my voice or seeing me on TV or, or on a movie screen is that my number one thing is to live in love. Be completely in love with your life. Give your love. Share this love that's from yourself. It is what has been granted to you and only you. And no one else has that love that, that Stacy has. No one has that love that Megan has. No one has the love that I have, that Alex Wynn has. And all I can put into this world is what Alex can put into this world. And if I leave my love in this world, then I know that I've done what I've been put here to do. Well, we loved having you on today. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Alex Wynn is an actor and stuntman. Recently, Alex has been involved in the newly announced television series called Treadstone, based on the world of Jason Bourne, and is set to premiere Tuesday, October 15th at 10 p.m. Eastern Time on the USA Network. Here's a special note to our listeners to make sure to check out our website at adecibel.com. That's A-D-E-C-I-B-E-L dot com. There, you'll find extended interview excerpts that you won't want to miss, behind-the-scenes photos, and some pretty hysterical outtakes. A Decibel Voices is hosted by me, Megan Rumler, and co-produced and edited by myself and Stacey Yu. All music is sourced royalty-free. Next week, we talk branding, what it is, what it means, how to use it, and the power it wields for both individuals and companies. Our guest is Michael Doomlau, Director of Brand for Booz Allen Hamilton, a U.S. management and technology consulting firm that is considered to be one of the largest and most successful contractors for defense and intelligence agencies today. Be sure to tune in. Hey, it's Stacy here. Since we're a brand new podcast, we need your help. Send us your feedback. We want this podcast to be listener-centered and would love to hear from you. What do you like, not like, or wish you could hear more of? Is there an Asian-American trailblazer whom you want us to interview? Tell us what you think. Call or text us at 202-599-3318. Leave your full name, contact info, age, and where you're from. Messages are recorded, so who knows? Maybe you'll hear yourself on our show. Thanks for listening, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.